Hello friends, I'm Vance Rains, Senior Pastor of First Church Coral Springs. Welcome to our podcast. I hope this is a source of inspiration and faith as you grow in your walk with Christ. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the message. Clips out of uh, a movie, anybody know the name? Pay it forward. Some of you, you know, that was 20 years ago. 20 years. I, I love that movie, but it's 20 years old. Um, pay it forward. Ba- ba- based on uh, an idea, a simple idea kindness. Uh, a teacher assigns a project. What could you do to change the world? Trevor, a young teenage uh, student, comes up with the idea of kindness that, that he will do significant planned acts of kindness for three other people, and then rather than to expect them to pay him back, he asks them to pay it forward, that, that they will then do th- for three others. And so, you know, he does it for three, then those three do it for nine, then those nine do it for 27, and then it grows, it grows, it grows exponentially. The idea is that, that acts of kindness inspire more acts of kindness, which inspires the change of the world. Today we're going to talk about kindness. And when I was working on my uh, doctoral degree, I was in Kentucky, uh, a couple hours south of Cincinnati, and there was a church that was just growing like crazy uh, in Cincinnati, and their growth was all tied to a philosophy of kindness. Uh, every weekend, members of the church were out in the community doing kindness. They would give away free coffee when it was cold, free Cokes when it was hot. They did free yard work, free um, um, car washes, all kinds of things, just hundreds of things. And anybody would say, anybody who would say, what does that cost? Or, you know, what's the catch? They would say, it's, it's, it's an act of kindness. Uh, it, it's a free gift, just like God's love is free. This is our gift to you, and we'd love to tell you more about it, and they'd give them some information about the church. Well, the church grew like crazy because they discovered that by covering that community in repeated acts of kindness, people became interested. What, what are you people all about? What, what's going on here? The pastor then was named Steve Shogren. He says, it seems people don't necessarily remember what they are told of God's love, which is really depressing for a preacher to hear. It seems people don't necessarily remember what they are told of God's love, what they hear, but they never forget what they have experienced of God's love, right? Experience uh, trumps hearing, right? A tangible experience of kindness. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We are on week four of a series we're calling Magnetic Faith. Magnet is our, our symbol, our metaphor. Uh, as a magnet attra- draws, attracts metal, we're saying Jesus is highly attractive. During his earthly ministry, he attracted the multitudes. And since his death and resurrection through the church, he continues to draw every generation, millions upon millions upon millions of followers, drawn to Jesus through us. We are his salt. We are his light. We are his aroma. We are the presence of Christ in the world. And so he is magnetic in the same way he calls us to be magnetic, to draw people to know him. And today we're going to talk about the magnetism of kindness, that there is something particularly magnetic about being treated with kindness. I just want you to think about that for a minute. Can you think of an example of when you have been a recipient of kindness, when someone has said a kind word to you, when somebody has done something kind for you. Can you think of something? 
It's nice, isn't it? Some of you are like, no, it's been a long time. I can't. It's nice, isn't it? Now think for a moment when you've been treated harshly. When you've been the object of someone's wrath or judgment, uh, where somebody's been not too kind to you, which feels better? When do you feel closer to God? When you're being treated with kindness or with harshness? Hmm. I think we all know the answer to that. Now, there's lots of ways that we can get people to come to church. There's lots of ways and have been tried throughout history. Um, there are some nations who have just simply said, if you're going to be part of this nation, that that means we have an official state religion. That makes you this religion. You're either Anglican or you're Catholic or Reformed or Lutheran, depending on where you live. That's one way to do it. Um, if you go back in history, when uh, the, the Europeans went out and uh, conquered and colonized the world, they just came in and said, uh, by the way, now you're our citizens. That makes you a particular religion. You now have to be this particular religion. Uh, that's created some issues. Uh, doesn't necessarily win hearts uh, to Jesus. Just makes them a particular religious brand. Uh, some religions use fear. They said, if you don't do this, then you're going to go to hell. Right? If you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell. It's a fear tactic. It works. A lot of people have ended up in church because of it. And let's just be honest. There's a lot of churches in our modern world that are using marketing to win people to Jesus and, and big stage shows and, uh, and, you know, flashing lights and all in programs and all of that. I mean, these are all things you can do to attract people to the religion of Christianity. But what did Jesus do? He was kind. Jesus was consistently kind. Now, don't get me wrong. He did other things, too. He was challenging. Uh, there were times that he went head-to-head -head with the Pharisees. There's times that he called his disciples on the carpet because uh, they were not getting it. There, he held people to a high level of accountability. But I would argue that the thing that drew people the most was his kindness. Were they drawn because he healed? Yes. Of course, they wanted to be healed. But that's a kind thing to do. Were they drawn to him because he could perform miracles like feeding the hungry? Yeah, of course. And that's a kind thing to do. Think about the, the, the kind of people that were drawn to him. People that were told, you're not important in our culture. You, you have sinned and you're unworthy. He attracted and embraced and treated people with dignity. That is kindness. Jesus was deeply kind. Romans 2.4 says, we heard it in the NIV, this is the New Living Translation. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Would you use those words to describe God? Wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient? I mean, we think of God, is that the kind of God you think of? Don't you know that that is who God is? He's wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient with you and with me. Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Or as we heard in the NIV, that kindness leads us to repentance, which means a change of life, change of heart, change of perspective. It's God's kindness that we respond to. So what does the Bible say when it talks about kindness? Well, sometimes the Bible's talking about God's kindness to us, and sometimes the Bible's talking about our kindness to others. But by the way, it means exactly the same thing. That the kindness we receive from God is the kindness we are meant to extend to others. And so when the Bible talks about kindness, it's talking about a gentleness of word and action. It's talking about a, 
a generosity of spirit, a generosity of heart indeed. It's talking about how we deal with one another and the way God deals with us, with tenderness and warmth and, and never failing love. And then how we offer that to others. And, and speaking of God's love, Paul wrote to Titus, verses uh, chapter 3, 4, and 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, ponder that statement. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. When did he appear? In Jesus. He's saying Jesus is the embodiment of God's kindness and love. When he came for us to save us, that is God's kindness for us. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He didn't save us because we earned it. He saved us because he's merciful. Mercy and, and gentleness and kindness are very all related, very much all related. Now, here the Bible says this over and over. You've heard me say it over and over. What we see in the person of Jesus, we are meant to live out. That you and I are to be reflections of Jesus in this world. And so because he lives in me, because the Holy Spirit is working in me, that the character and nature of God toward me is also at work through me to others. And so it says Galatians 5, through 23, this is about the fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. There's a whole long list of them, but just see how it goes. Love, joy, peace, patience, and... If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you'll be kind. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you will be kind. That is the result of the Spirit's work within us. I, I love this quote by someone named Ian McLaren. He probably was writing as a, a pseudonym. His real name was John Watson. It says, let us be kind to one another, for most of us are fighting a hard battle. Like that's, that's just a deeply Christian conviction. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, that you ever had a, a day that things are not going, and who would know? I mean, but it's not going that great, and then somebody kicks you in the shin, steps on your toe, right? When really what you needed was a pat on the back. It's like everybody's fighting a tough battle. Not, none of us understand the whole situation. None of us know what the other one's going through. Let's treat each other with kindness, because that's what God does. Well, when I think about kindness... Um, the book of the Bible I'm most drawn to around that subject is the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. A number of people know about Ruth, but not a lot of people have read it. I found out. A lot of people said today, I didn't know about that book. Way back in the Old Testament, small little book. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I want to tell you the whole story and pick out a few verses for you. Uh, the book of Ruth uh, is about a particular family from a little town called Bethlehem. You heard of Bethlehem before? A little town called Bethlehem. Uh, the, the matriarch of that family was a woman named Naomi. Naomi was married, and she had two sons, and a famine came to the land uh, where Bethlehem was, Israel, and, uh, and they had to leave. This happens throughout history, that a famine will strike a particular place, war strikes a particular place, hardship, and people have to relocate. It's happened throughout the history of the world. They decide to relocate to the land of Moab. They're there for a very long time uh, because there's food there. Um, and while they're there, the two sons of Naomi grow up. They marry Moabite wives. Then tragedy strikes. First, Naomi's husband dies. Then each of her sons die. Now imagine that. You've been displaced from your home, and now you've lost your husband 
and both of your sons. How do you think she's feeling? Terrible, right? I mean, just this is, this is meant to tell us this is a terrible tragedy. She's, she's found herself in a place of deep, deep sorrow, even bitterness. And so she turns to her two daughter-in-laws. One's name's Orpah, the other's name is Ruth. And says to them, I need to go back to my people, to Bethlehem. But, but you shouldn't go with me. You should stay in Moab and find Moabite husbands. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one reason that she's not encouraging to come with her is because when you were a widow in ancient times, you were in a particular vulnerable position. You didn't have money, you didn't have property, you didn't have rights in society. That's why marriage was partially so important in biblical times because on your own as a widow, you're at the mercy of the care of others. And so she says to her daughters, you you really probably should stay here and remarry. There aren't opportunities for three widows back where I'm going. The other reason uh, was this, they were foreigners, right? And so they follow her back into this country of Jews. And I've said to you, you know, that, that Israel understood that it was supposed to be hospitable to strangers. But that doesn't always happen, does it? Sometimes the foreign person among us is not always treated uh, as, as hospitably as they ought to be. And so she knew that. Like, I'm, I, I'm bringing you back. I don't know if I can find husbands for you back there. They're going to want to marry Jewish wives, not Moabite wives. And so, so this is reasonable. I'll go back. You stay here. You find new, new husbands, rather. Um, and, and Orpah says, okay, I think that makes sense. And so she stays. But Ruth says to her mother-in-law, nope, I'm not leaving you. If you're going back to Israel, I'm going with you. If you're going to Bethlehem, I'm going with you. This is a familiar passage. You've probably heard Ruth 1, 16, 17. Where you go, I will go. You heard that one? Sometimes used at weddings. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will be, and there I will be buried. Ruth is saying, yeah, I understand the situation. I'm a widow too. I understand I'll be a foreigner back there in Bethlehem, but my loyalty is to you. That's an act of kindness. That's an act of kindness. When she's willing to sacrifice for herself a better opportunity for the sake of a commitment she's made to a family, for her love, for her mother-in-law. So they go back. Now, here comes another little tradition from ancient times. When they return to Bethlehem, one day, uh, Ruth goes out to the fields to glean. To glean. You've heard that word before? Glean. It's a biblical idea that comes from uh, ancient practice. It's from Leviticus 9, 9 through 10, a couple other places. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the the poor and the foreigner. Leave them. Don't, don't, don't pick everything you grow. Leave some of it for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And she goes out to the field to glean. Now I want you to hear that. That is a cultural kindness. It was established when the, within the culture of Israel that if you are a grain farmer, if you are a, a, a owner of a vineyard, if you're the owner of, a, of, of an olive grove, don't send your people in to pick them bare. In fact, the standard was 10%. Leave 10% on the, 
on the tree, on the vine, whatever it is. And the poor person can come and pick what they need from it. Imagine for a moment you run a widget factory. And when you're done at the end of the day, packing all your orders around the country of widgets, you leave the doors open for the community to come in and pick up the widgets that are laying on the floor and the ones that didn't get sold today. Can you imagine that? It's radical. This is radical. That, that we are not, I am not going to keep everything for myself. We as a culture are going to make sure we leave some out for the sake of others. It's a kindness. So here's the second act of kindness in the book of Ruth. A a cultural kindness. We care for the poor and the widow among us. Well, she goes out to the field. She's gleaning. It's a common practice. And and along comes the owner of the field, and his name is Boaz. Boaz, a great name for your next son, Boaz. And Boaz notices this foreign woman. He's never seen her before. She's out there gleaning, and he asks people, who is she? And everybody says, oh, well, she's new in town. She's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Oh, I know Naomi. Yeah, she came back with her. She lost her husband. You know, Naomi lost her husband too. Oh, okay. And so Boaz pays a little special attention. He says to her, he goes up to, to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and go, don't go away from here. I mean, you could do that. You could work a little in this field and a little in that field. Just, just work here. Stay here with the women who work with me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. You see, as a foreigner and as a widow, she's vulnerable. And you can read into this. Don't lay a hand on her. I mean, who's going to hold it against them if they take advantage of, of uh, someone vulnerable? He's like, don't touch her. Right? Don't touch her. I've told her, in my field, you're protected. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Notice this. Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard about your kindness. And so now I'm going to treat you with kindness. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it into the wine vinegar. He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves, don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stocks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Here's a third example of kindness. He says, stay in my field. You'll be protected. You'll be safe. He gives her dinner. He actually actually pulls out some more. And so she ends up going home with this big bundle of grain, way more than you would expect, gleaning. And, and Naomi goes, where did all that come from? Where were you gleaning today? And she said, oh, I was gleaning in the field of Boaz. Boaz? Boaz? She knows about Boaz. Boaz's family. And let me tell you why that matters. Now, you might think, oh, good, family. Well, family takes care of family. Mm, Okay, that's not what's going on here. In biblical times, there was something known as leveret law. Leveret law works like this. If I get married to my wife, Kelly, and I die before she has a son, my son, who will take care of her when I'm gone, if, that, if, if, if she has a son, that's fine. She doesn't have to remarry. But if, she, if I die, she doesn't have a son, 
Then Leverett Law says she marries the next member of my family, which would be my brother, right? So I die. I didn't have a son. I do. His name's John, but I didn't. Kelly needs to get remarried. Who does she marry? She marries my brother. The problem is I'm an only child, right? What, look at the, think of the story of Naomi. She has two sons. Everybody's dead. So where do these, where do these widows go? There's no one in the Leverett lineup. Right now, it so it works in such a way that it just keeps working its way out further and further and further further down the family line. Well, apparently Naomi had forgotten that Boaz was family. It never even occurred to her that oh, Leverett Law, we could kind of get these two folks together. So watch what happens. She says, "The Lord has not stopped showing His kindness to the living and the dead." This is Naomi, who was bitter. The Lord has not showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is a close relative. Hadn't occurred to her until this moment. But ah, now Lever Law probably sounds strange to you, right? Marrying your brother-in-law, ladies, right? That's a little weird. A little weird. Guys, that's a little weird. Your wife's going to marry your brother, right? She says it's kindness. An institutionalized kindness. Ah, Boaz. So a plan gets into place, and, and she starts waiting for the right moment, and Naomi then comes to uh, Ruth and says, Ruth 3, 1 through 4, I encourage you to read the whole book, by the way. Ruth 3, 1 through 4, my daughter, I must find a home for you. She's a widow. I can't provide you a home. You need a, I need a home for you. Boaz is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash. Put on perfume. Get dressed in your best 70s outfit. Then go down to the threshing floor. I don't think that was it. They go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. What kind of drinking do you think? When he lies down, note the place where he is lying and passed out. Then go over and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Now, I'm not going to get into it now. If you'd like to come to me privately, I'll explain what's happening in this story. It's not his feet, um, but just, okay. So Boaz wakes up, here's this lovely young lady next to him. He's like, who are you? Oh, I'm Ruth. We met in the field, and I'm a family member. And he says, Ruth 3, 10 through 11, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness, kindness, is greater than that which you showed earlier. What you're doing right now, offering yourself to me, would basically meaning as a, as a wife, as a bride, is even kinder than what you did for your mother-in-law. You didn't know that this was going to work out the way it did, you see? Like he's saying, there, there's a, a kindness there. I'm going to respond to it. You have not run after the younger men, which are rich, or whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. So you might say, well, that's an interesting place. Let's just tie up that story. Isn't that nice? They get married. They live happily ever after. Story starts sad. Everybody dies. We get to the end. It all comes together. That's what the story is. God's sovereignty. God makes it all work out, right? But the story is not over. Ruth and, uh, Ruth and Boaz get married. They have a son named Obed. Another great name for your next son, Obed. Obed and Boaz. If you have twins, Obed and Boaz. Obed. Obed grows up and he has a son. Anybody know his name? Jesse. Jesse grows up. We're all still in the little town of Bethlehem. Jesse grows up 
And he has a whole bunch of sons. The youngest of his son, not sons, not very impressive to look at, uh, just this runty little guy, is named David, who fights Goliath, who's then welcomed into the courts of the king, who, and then later he himself becomes the king, King David, greatest king over the nation of Israel, author of most of the books of, book of Psalms. He has such a close relationship with God that it says throughout Scripture that even in spite of his failings and flaws, that he is a man after God's own heart. And so because of their close relationship, God says to David, I'll do a special favor for you, 2 Samuel seven sixteen. your kingdom, David, will endure forever. That means someone is always from your lineage is going to sit on my throne. Your throne will be established how long? Forever, that's a pretty long time. So 28 generations later, in the little town of Bethlehem, a descendant of David is born, and his name is, and he died and was resurrected, he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he'll reign forever as the king of the kingdom of heaven. And it all started back one night on the threshing floor when Ruth comes and uncovers the feet of Boaz, and he says, how kind of you, how kind of you. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting, isn't it? And then remember the Romans passage? It's his kindness that leads us. It's a story of kindness, but it's not just a nice little Old Testament story. This is the story of God. Now let me take it even a little, a little further. I just went through a little bit of the genealogy of Jesus. If you want to see the whole genealogy of Jesus, you can go into to Luke and into Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 will tell you the whole genealogy of Jesus. Normally genealogies are, are told along the, the line of the father. You know, so, so uh, I begat my son John, my father Clark begat me, his father John begat him. My, his, my great-grandfather was Arlie Arrestus, who, who, uh, who begat... John, right? It's, it's men. It's men. Same in the book of Matthew. Except in this multi-generational lineage, genealogy, three women appear. It's very unusual. Very, very unusual. And guess who appears in the genealogy of Jesus? Matthew 1.5. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was a Moabite, a foreigner, a widow, who showed kindness. Just think about the story. Ruth showed kindness to Naomi. She says, I'll go with you. I'll never leave you. Right? Israel showed kindness through gleaning as a cultural institution, through Leverett Law as a cultural institution, as strange as that sounds. Boaz shows kindness to Ruth, saying, just work in this field. I'll protect you. I'm not going to let any harm come to you. Ruth shows Boaz kindness by offering herself as the bride. And then some 30-plus generations later, the Savior of the world is born, who saved us through his kindness of giving himself. Is it too far a stretch to say that Jesus was the result of kindness? Ancient kindness, kindness from the heart of God. Is it too much to say that we worship a kind Savior? She inherited, he inherited from his great, 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 grandmother. It's a family trait. So what's the point of all this? The point is that when we are kind, we are reflecting God's heart and character. Because that's how God relates to us. The point is that when we're kind, we are demonstrating that the Holy Spirit is within us, and the opposite is probably true as well, when we're not kind. 
The point is that we never know the result of what our kindness might be. It's like the paying it forward kind of a thing. We never know how it's going to touch somebody's life, but it will. Today, you might be kind to a waiter, a waitress or a waiter at a restaurant. You might be kind to the, to the person checking you out of public. You might be kind getting out of the parking lot and not running somebody over. You never know, right, how that kindness pays it forward. The point, kindness is magnetic. I'll end with this. Mother Teresa, just a beautiful quote. She says, let no one ever come to you without leaving better and happier. Is that true? No, 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 no. I didn't mean as a true opinion. I mean as a true of you. Would everyone that you meet, would everyone that you interact with, would they say they leave you better and happier? And then she says, be the living expression of God's kindness. I just love that. Be the living expression of God's kindness. Kindness in your face, kindness in your eyes, kindness in your smile. We have a kind God. Let's be kind. So, Lord, may you fill us with your kindness. Remind us of your kindness. It's your kindness that has drawn us to you. And now be kind in us and through us, Lord. May we be known as a kind church in this community. May we be kind to each other. May we be reminded, even in difficult times, like like Naomi went through, bitter times, that you're at work, that we can trust your kindness even when we don't see it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about First Church and our ministries, visit us online at welovefirst.church.